Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, from the Government Accountability Project, special guest Lewis Clark joins the roundtable to discuss Edward Snowden, the NSA, and civil rights. Has terrorism destroyed our civil liberties? Also, how has America lost its mojo with the international community, and when did we lose it? America is offering convicted spy David Pollard as a way to get the Middle East talks back on track. Is America selling our security, or is this smart strategy? Listen, tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. out there in Radio Land, it's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is former Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hi, how are you? Just Doing fantastic, sir. And to my 12 o'clock directly across the table today, he is the former Undersecretary for International Affairs who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome and knowledgeable fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin, on this election day in Washington, D.C. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit later in the show. And to my right, he is a long-term, in- long-term Washington insider and former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin, and I hope everybody in D.C. is voting today. Oh, we'll talk about that later, but we have got a jam-packed show going. We've got so much to talk about between uh, the Israeli-Middle East talks deal. We've got uh, talks about international mojo being lost, but we're going to start off today with our special guest. Uh, We are very fortunate to have with us. He is the president of the Government Accountability Project. Uh, He is... uh, been active in talking about whistleblower uh, issues. He, uh, he is a uh, longtime advocate for uh, personal and private rights as it relates to national security. Joining us on the phone right now, he is Mr. Lewis Clark. Wrong button. There we go. Mr. Clark, can you hear us? Yes. Mr. Clark, thank you very much for joining us uh, here on Backroom Politics. Mr. Clark, let's get right into it. Uh, you know, we, when we, we hear about the Government Accountability Project, we, we immediately go to whistleblowers. But tell us a little bit for our listeners what exactly the Government Accountability Project does and how it relates to interaction with our own government. Yes, uh, there's four things we do. I'll be very quick. One is we represent whistleblowers as their attorneys. Secondly, is we investigate what they have to say, 
we substantiate that, investigate that, check out their credibility, and then and then uh, come up with a reform agenda around that concern. Third, what we do is we work on legislation. So there, we're involved in the 51 federal laws that now protect whistleblowers in one way or another. And then finally, we try to get out to the public to let them know that whistleblowers are patriots and they're not thinks and tattletales or traitors. Well, you know, uh, Mr. Clark, when we, when we talk about uh, whistleblowers, there, there are many people that we can talk about. The, the obvious one in today's news cycles has obviously been Edward Snowden. Uh, you know, uh, we know that uh, Jocelyn Raddick, who's also part of your program, uh, is representing Mr. Snowden uh, in, in his uh, dealings with the government here. But one of the questions that we've asked on the show from time to time is, one man's whistleblower is another man's spy, another man's traitor. That seems to be a very fine line. Have you guys been able to navigate that fine line uh, as dealing with just judicial authorities, law enforcement, and the government as a whole? Well, for one thing, I sort of don't accept that alternative. I, you know, I, uh, as either uh, someone's traitor, I think that's really going off the deep end when you're talking about someone like Snowden. Uh, to call him a traitor uh, is, uh, I think, beyond the pale. Uh, but, I mean, that's obviously our point of view. But nevertheless, I, I think a, a better way to say it, perhaps, is uh, a whistleblower might be one person's hero, but in terms of the people who are accused of wrongdoing by that whistleblower, they are probably an enemy of that, of the person that is charged with um, corruption. So it's almost a either hero or villain type situation, and, and you know, obviously with the revelations that are coming out of the NSA and out of the government as a result of uh, Edward Snowden's revelations, uh, do you feel that there's been some sort of vindication, not just for Edward Snowden, but for other whistleblowers that have been yeah. inside the government? Definitely. I mean, th this is really our fourth whistleblower, our, well, our fifth whistleblower from the NSA. Uh, all of them reporting on the surveillance program that was out of control and that the American people didn't know about. And so definitely he has, has confirmed what these earlier whistleblowers have been saying, which is essentially that that this question is going on and that the leaders, especially, for example, the director of national intelligence is, is essentially lying to the Congress about it. it is, um, is, is this a matter of, in your opinion, that the government has gotten too big and too powerful and almost too cocky as, far, as it relates to how they're dealing with the, the barrier between civil rights and what should be national security? I, 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 I'm not so sure. So I, I I don't use the word too big. I think it's just gotten too corrupt, uh, and therefore, I mean, it, it essentially it has come up with a program which, in our view, is uh, is illegal, and also unconstitutional. And I, of course, I know that's a matter of opinion as well. But there has been a federal judge and a and a fairly uh, well-known panel that concluded the same thing about the unconstitutionality of the, of the mass collection program on American innocent American citizens. 
is it, it, it almost seems, though, I mean, you've talked about now a fifth whistleblower out of NSA, out of literally thousands and thousands of employees that are, that are uh, working at that agency. It, it, why are they so afraid to talk to or at least blow the whistle in the, some instances on activities that are uh, counterproductive to American civil liberties and American civil rights? Because every one of the earlier whistleblowers, including a staff member of the House, uh, who uh, went to the IG, in, Inspector General, I should say, about their concerns about the surveillance program, was put under criminal investigation. Their homes were invaded, and uh, their homes were emptied of any paper and computers, etc. Uh, in one instance, uh, guns were drawn and put to the, to the temple of the whistleblower himself, who was a high-level NSA official. He was director of technology, Bill Benny. And, and so every one of them, and one of them was prosecuted, Thomas Drake, and charged with 10 felony counts. And so if you blow the whistle to the IG, this is what you can expect. But doesn't, doesn't the Inspector General's charter, isn't the law that created the Office of the Inspector General's in all agencies? Wasn't that, wasn't that designed to protect the employees from, from such, whether you want to call it retaliation or such heavy investigations? Well, very few IGs do actually protect the, the whistleblower in any significant way. But one thing we all can agree on, it was they were designed to actually get to the root of the problem that the whistleblower has identified. And, and that they were charged with doing. Instead, it was the IG itself that turned the name over to the FBI. When the, when the New York Times article ran on the secret surveillance program in 2005, uh, the, the IG turned the name over to the FBI, the names of the whistleblowers over to the FBI, even though none of those whistleblowers worked with the New York Times or went, you know, or leaked to the New York Times. Alan Moore. You know, I, I, <laughs> I feel like, first of all, I have to just, just make an observation that when you, when you were distressed that in Justin's opening, he, he, he suggested that there, are, that there are those people who think of uh, Edward Snowden as a traitor. Around this table, we haven't called him that, but then you said that's beyond the pale, but then in the next breath, you were referring to him as, you know, as some people's hero, and I thought, well... Maybe that's beyond the pale, too. There, there's this huge middle ground here that is really hard for, uh, for us to, to, to wrap our hands around. Um, he is accused of breaking the law. Uh, some of us think that it's pretty clear that he did break the law. Um, and then, of course, he ran, and he continues to release things, or has already released things into the hands of other people who are now in control of that information that appear, uh, appear to be doing on an ongoing basis some significant harm uh, to the U.S. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to what you guys are trying to do, and I'm also sympathetic to the fact that once you take on a particular person to try to help them, then you <laughs> it's almost like whatever else they have done or do uh, you're kind of stuck with. Uh, it's a little bit like the, the, the CEO of General Motors. She's now the CEO, 
she's got to be uh, explaining away and defending past bad behavior of, of people before her. I, 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 I'm intrigued with, with, uh, with the dilemma that, uh, that you face, and I have a, a enormous respect for, for some uh, whistleblowers. The, the, uh, the IG in the case of NSA, the, I mean, I was, I was a fairly senior person at, at, once upon a time at, at a federal agency, and what the IG did was really the way you described it. I mean, they, they, they get reports of wrongdoing, and then they go investigate them, and usually it's wrongdoing to benefit somebody personally. It's not wrongdoing against the, 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 the society, the Constitution, the laws. It's, it's sort of... It, it, I doubt that we have too many IGs historically who have been prepared to take on issues of that size, which is not to defend grabbing somebody, reporting them, and, and subjecting them to what you were well, describing. That brings up a good question, Mr. Clark, is, you know, in your role as the head of the Government Accountability Project, in, in your role as protecting uh, the whistleblowers in these specific agencies, have you had a... A, a, a relationship with the government officials, with the IGs, with uh, the Office of Congressional Investigations, for example, and any other law enforcement agencies such as DOJ. On a daily basis, I mean, we work with the, we work with many, many IGs. Certainly, work with the Justice Department. Uh, we are in the congressional committees constantly on the on their oversight function, as well as their function as legislators for whistleblower protection. So we have, and, and we have a decent relationship even with the White House on other issues uh, related to corporate whistleblowing, for example. Uh, and, and we are working with the White House on trying to actually implement the Executive Order 19, uh, which is uh, the uh, whistleblower. I mean, which was the is the Executive Order to deal with uh, whistleblowers and intelligence agencies. Call to and you have a question for Lewis Clark. Yes, Mr. Clark. What is your uh, view on the fact that after Mr. Snowden started to uh, divulge all these things, <clears throat> that NSA and others in the government were saying how this, this can harm us overseas, our, uh, some of our people stationed overseas, uh, CIA and others? Uh, what, do you, what is your answer to that? Well, first of all, I don't think the CIA, I, I, I haven't heard of any damage to the CIA ever, you know, made by the CIA itself. Uh, in terms of the NSA, I mean, their only statements about damage that they've made is a very, very broad brush and not, you know, with no specifics at all. And um, the damage, most of the damage assessments or statements have been made by people who are no longer in the government or or pundits on the issue, but the the government really hasn't come out with anything definitive. I mean, I, as we well know, is Ben Laden stopped using cell phones in 1997. I mean, it's so. I mean, the the first statements out of the NSA is that oh, these people aren't going to be using these instruments anymore. Well, they haven't been. So I I, I the da the damage to me. I mean, the, I, I don't think there was any big question in terms of the terrorists about the capability of the NSA. I think what was the big surprise is the American people knowing that it was directed toward them in terms of, uh, of the surveillance and the, and the gather, gathering of material and information. 
Well, has, have you been approached or are you involved in working with Senator Dianne Feinstein and her revelations about the uh, hacking incident that occurred in the Senate? No, we haven't, uh, although I'm very sympathetic to it. It was the same thing that happened to Dianne Roark, uh, which is the NSA, happened with the NSA, is that she was investigating the same concerns about surveillance uh, and uh, as um, Thomas Drake, and then her home was invaded, her documents taken, and she was threatened with criminal prosecution. And that was a, as a staff member of the House Intelligence Committee. Interesting. Congressman, I mean, it's out of control. Congressman, you have a question for uh, Lewis Clark. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for your uh, <coughs> for, for for what you do and and how difficult it is to do it. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure, I'm not sure it's possible to do what you're doing. My experience in the Congress was twofold. First of all, I would have constituents who would be upset with something that would come up with the most imaginative. Uh, ideas and conspiracy theories that were ludicrous and I'd be explaining away no, this agency wasn't doing that kind of thing da 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 <clears throat> but I also had the experience in at least three specific occasions which I don't think there's any point in going into specifically here but three different agencies that just lied to my ass while I was family show congressman, well, family show <laughs> Yes, uh, it, it's not the first time we violated that rule. Uh, uh, but they just, just you know, and, and so if you're if you're a, a U.S. congressman and these people are lying to you, frankly, you have difficulty knowing what you're going to do about that. You can go to the press. Uh, unless you have an awful lot of proof, that's not going to do you any good. Uh, going to their higher-ups is unlikely. Writing a letter to the president isn't going to work. Uh, and uh, we, we had incidents, for example, where one agency, and I'll mention it, it was the Food and Drug Administration, had two groups who disagreed on whether a, a given thing should be approved. And they stymied each other. And I... Finally, uh, along with Senator Slade Gorton, called the head of the agency and said, you've got these two people. We're not telling you what kind of decision to make. We're just asking you to get a decision. And he said there was nothing he could do. And the two fought to a standstill. And uh, the, the uh, business that was, uh, in, in, happened to be involved uh, went broke, 160 Jobs were lost, uh, and and here you have a U.S. congressman and a U.S. senator essentially helpless to do anything about it. So it seems to me that yours is a heroic effort, but uh, you are got you got tough odds. Well, that, that brings up Mr. Clark a great question. Going off of what the congressman just said, is you know looking at it as a whole, you know we, we're focused on the NSA a little bit, but right. there are whistleblowers throughout. Uh, government and other agencies such as FDA, Department of Justice, Energy, uh, even innocuous ones like you know Department of Labor, Department of Education. Are you dealing with those at those similar levels, and are you finding similar experiences in those agencies? Yes, across the board. 
uh, we have been, and and I'm very sympathetic. And that is also why, uh, by the congressman here, always voted for whistleblower protection, uh, both in terms of corporate and government. And that's why the vast majority, and it's usually unanimous, of the members of Congress have been voting for whistleblower protection for federal employees and for federal contractors. If there's been a sea change in the law as a result of, in my opinion, the, the agencies lying to members of Congress. So how are they going to ever find out, really, to find out what's going on, how can they ever really do, uh, you know, perform their oversight function if they're being lied to? That's why whistleblowers are so valuable. Uh, one more question. Uh, here's a question for you, Lou. Have, has anybody in, who's, a, who's a sitting member of Congress ever sought your advice or help. I'm not. I'm not looking for uh, for you to divulge, you know, any any private information. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and let me tell you what I what I'm thinking about. When Senator from Oregon Ron Wyden asked James Clapper if yes. if if the if if the U.S. government was collecting any broad-based information on on its citizens, and he said no. Um, and of course, he's been uh, uh, trying to explain that away uh, and apologize for it ever since. Uh, right. Little attention little attention's been paid to the fact that Ron Wyden is a member of the uh, of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Presumably, knew the answer to this question that he was asking. I'm guessing that he probably had tried some other ways because he's a pretty responsible guy. Had tried some other ways to get this information out and then for whatever reason decided that this was an appropriate forum to ask a particular question in a particular way to that particular person who fumbled the answer uh, pretty badly, uh, no question about it. But, but it, it, there's a question there that a few have raised uh, that did, was, was Ron Wyden faithful to the oath he took inside the Senate when he joined the Intelligence Committee? And I'm just... Curious as to whether that's something that you guys have ever thought about or or paid any attention to. Not at that level, but yes, constantly. I mean, we do work with members of Congress in in working on the concerns that are being raised, usually by whistleblowers, sometimes just insiders of the government who are raising ethical and moral decisions, and we do work with usually with the staff more than the member of Congress. But though, uh, the kind of dilemma where he's actually facing the dilemma, a member of Congress has not come to us with that direct of uh, absolutely moral quandary that, that he must have been in at that time. Well, let me follow up with that one, uh, Mr. Clark. Is this a situation, is it hasn't happened yet? Do you anticipate possibly seeing a member of Congress seeking whistleblower protection and working with your group? I, th- I think it's headed that way because of just because of, of what we're seeing with uh, Diane Feinstein right now and her committee. I mean, she's trying to protect. She's run a fifty million dollar investigation. Has found tremendous issues and concerns that should concern everybody. And now their staff is being put on a criminal, potentially criminal investigation. I mean, that's why you call the FBI in, is because you want to launch a criminal investigation. I mean, that goes to the very integrity of not only the committee, but the Congress itself. And I think that, that unless 
the intelligence agencies pull back or forced to pull back by the president, we're going to see continuing confrontations on these concerns and, and members of Congress put in these binds. Well, uh, Carl Tubin, you have a question for uh, Lewis Clark. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> uh, why, why did Edward Snowden choose Jesslyn Reddick <clears throat> as his counsel in, in America? Well, he, he, cho- I mean, he chose her because she represented Thomas Drake. He studied the Thomas Drake case. Uh, Thomas Drake was the NSA whistleblower who was charged with 10 counts of, you know, of 10 felony counts and whose case collapsed uh, on the eve of trial. And he had studied, Snowden had studied that case and was uh, apparently um, pleased by her method and, and mode of representation. One more, one more question. We've we got to come to close. We've we got five minutes. We just want to touch on a couple of real quickly. One, uh, going back to Edward Snowden real quick, uh, Mr. Clark, uh, do you envision or do you feel that Russia could possibly gain from Edward Snowden being in Russia with the knowledge that he has? Or has Edward Snowden, in fact, said, look, I did what I did for the protection of American civil rights, I'm not going to sell out the American government only. No, he hasn't sold out the American public. I mean, and in addition to that, he turned everything he had over to the press or to the media before he went to Russia. He, he took no document with him to Russia, despite the information put out by the NSA, which was inaccurate. The, he took is, nothing with him. Well, let me, let me go back and ask one question. Is was it his decision to go to the Guardian newspaper? Did you guys have any influence with creating the relationship between him and the Guardian newspaper? And was that the no. right call? I, I think it was the right call. We didn't make it, and and we did not begin representing him until after he went public. So, uh, so that he made that decision himself. He made the decision based on their reporting earlier, of which he thought was stellar. And he thought they were courageous. One, one last question, and, and well, actually one and then a follow-up real quick. Uh, number one, does Edward Snowden ever come back to the U.S.? Yes. Will he be prosecuted, or as we have, as some have reported, there will there be a deal for him to come back and work on getting some of this, work, uh, getting some of this, um, what's the right word here, either worked out or as some sort of lesson learned? I, I, I think there's, some, there's going to be some kind of uh, agreement uh, reached, but it's, it's certainly not happening right now. But I do think eventually. And, and, uh, one last question. You know, we've been talking about Edward So We've been talking about whistleblowers. Um, what makes people trust your organization, the Government Accountability Project, as the go-to source in these instances, why do they trust you as opposed to going to the IG? I think they trust us because we have we when we represent them, we have their interest at heart, their interest as a whistleblower, and they have to have the public interest at heart. So we, you know, it's really a combination of the two. But our our first allegiance is to them. 
their allegiances to the public interest. Uh, the AGs have other allegiances to the agencies and, and the like. Very good. Uh, Mr. Lewis Clark, head of the Government Accountability Project here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mr. Clark, thank you very much. We hope thank you. uh, you've enjoyed it. We really appreciate very you much. being here, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Yes, I loved it. Thank, thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. Much. And thank when you. we come back, when we come back, we're having a button issue here at Backroom Politics today. We're going to, we're going to change subjects a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, how America lost its mojo in the international community. We have been getting blow after blow recently in the international press, and we're not holding down the credibility we used to. Heck, North and South Korea were exchanging artillery shells yesterday. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Watching DC, we'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Get a zipper. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
And we're back here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. You can join the conversation, 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions for our discussion at Backroom Politics, and you can email your questions, justin at backroompolitics.org. Uh, great segment with Lewis Clark, great insight, uh, but we're going to change uh, tracks here. You know, we've been looking at, uh, right now here on uh, in the backroom politics here at Shelley's in the Smoking Crusted Nerve Center, we have uh, President Obama talking about the uh, Affordable Care Act and those numbers. We'll talk about that in the next hour. We're going to monitor his comments here for a second. But speaking of President Obama, it seems that in the international community that America has just absolutely lost a ton of credibility in being able to either negotiate, being able to make deals, and being able to starve off or stave off any sort of disastrous results. We saw it in the Ukraine. We are seeing it in the Koreas right now. As of yesterday, North Korea and South Korea were exchanging artillery shells. That is a dangerous situation. The peace talks that President Obama has pushed as one of his big foreign policy agendas items, has not gone forward. In fact, they've taken tracks back. I go to you, Congressman Al, have we really lost that much traction in our credibility in the international community? I think we've lost some. <clears throat> exactly how much is hard to tell, but I, but I would argue that it started way before President Obama. You've got to remember that President Bush was not uh, the darling of uh, the foreign policy uh, experts in the world. Uh, he uh, he referred to the coalition that supported his his position in Iraq, and uh, a lot of tiny, tiny countries uh, that, that he had, but uh, not some of the big ones, and not a lot of them. And his approach to it was uh, was one that would not 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 allowing uh, Hans Blix to finish his study and so forth and so on. So I'm suggesting that, yes, first of all, you had a president who was a cowboy, and I think we lost some uh, respect there, and now we've got a president who doesn't seem to be able to make up his mind very clearly, and I think we're losing some respect. But, but Alan Moore, I mean, we've got... A president that's been in office now for a term, almost a term and a half, is it fair to say that he's still cleaning up the the pieces of what was possibly a flawed international affairs policy by the Bush administration? That well, isn't what I said. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's what you said. I'm just asking a question to Alan now. He's... He's, he's, dealing, he's, he's dealing necessarily with the aftermath of a couple of uh, well, at least one uh, ill-conceived war that, although Al likes to call him a cowboy, if so, he was leading a herd of cowboys in the Congress because a majority did, did go along, and he's dismissive of our allies, calling them tiny countries like, oh, the U.K. and Spain. But, but it, was it an ill-conceived war in Iraq? Yes, it was. It, it, it was based on a false premise for a whole bunch of reasons, and most of us... The smart intelligence people in the world thought, yeah, yeah, he's got him, he's got him. Now, 
We end up with a war that was ill-conceived and based on a false premise for a lot of interesting reasons, but the fact remains that that's what we had. And then we go into Af- then we're also in Afghanistan, which had we been observing the uh, the Russians in the 1980s, um, we would have realized, oh, is that a place where you can just go in and make stuff happen? We have these two expensive, costly in every way, in in in, in treasure and in lives, um, wars. The people want to get out of it, and then we have a get out of them both. The pre- then we have a president with virtually zero foreign policy experience and doesn't have the strongest team around him. Um, and we we go down a path over the last five years that this president peaked in his first year when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't blame him for that. I blame those idiots in, in Norway for that because it's just been an embarrassment. It wasn't his fault. Um, but but it's, it's sort of an interesting symbol that ever since, as we're trying to extract ourselves, draw red lines, embrace people who are going to fail, we've got a pretty sorry history. And right now, Egypt is a god-awful mess. Syria is this president's Rwanda. The, the Russian Federation and Putin are sort of running circles around us. And our response is to dismiss him as a region, dismiss them as a regional power. Oh, that just happens to have hundreds of nuclear weapons and him having his way. So we've kind of lost our way. We've got a very assertive and aggressive Secretary of State who wants to do great things and he keeps guessing wrong on, uh, on, on what he's trying to do. We, you know, we never had the mojo here in this administration because we were at the outset dealing with trying to clean up what we were in the middle of that was unpopular and in, in, in important ways I think, Congressman I, think, I think what Alan said is what I said only with facts. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Dream on, Alan. Call Supreme. Call Tubin. Well, <clears throat> I don't want to repeat everything that's been said. Number one, uh, he was left a mess. He was left a mess economically. He was left a mess in foreign policy. Uh, he was he was able to uh, start to move us out of the economic abyss and uh, did things that people thought shouldn't have been done, shouldn't have saved the car car people. Uh, you know, banks tumble before he got there and all that. Uh, he gets in office. He knows the shape that we are in with our, our, our allies and people around the world. He asked the Secretary of State to go around and talk to these people to try to gain a little confidence back, a little support back. Uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, he also, they also, have, I believe, had in mind that if, if they went to the, some of the Arab countries, that they would hopefully build a consensus there that the uh, Israeli-Arab situation should be solved and a treaty should be made. Uh, George Bush waited to the last year before he even tried to solve the problem uh, in the Middle East. 
this president has been at it since day one. Uh, but, it, but it seems, but it seems, Carl, that, that that opponents of the president's foreign policy situation, you know, that you look at Syria, where we should have had the credibility to at least try diplomatic relations in solving that crisis. It did not work. We look at the Libyan crisis. The Libyan crisis basically eluded the current administration, and the Republicans weren't much help in that. Uh, but you also look at even dealings with our own allies. The, the, the relationship between Andrea Merkel and Obama have been up and down. Uh, the, uh, the British Prime Minister, the, 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 our close friendship with David Cameron has been up and down. Is this a matter of just lack of experience, or is this a matter of we just really can't find our way in dealing with some of these foreign policy crises? You know, I think this crisis, the crisis with Russia, first of all, number one, you know, we, we thought the Cold War was over. Now, we didn't foresee that this was going to happen. Uh, one, one writer, a few writers that I saw two weeks ago in the Post, in the New York Times, uh, claimed that our, we, don't ha we are not up on Russia. That ended, people used to study Russia, and a lot of that ended when the Cold War ended. So we have a little vacuum as to, as to what happened. But Alan Moore, you know, when, when we look, I mean, Vladimir Putin hasn't necessarily just popped up on the radar screen. Uh, Vladimir Putin has now bridged two, almost three, administrations in his power, in his uh, power climbing endeavor to be the head of Russia. Two times. Is this a matter of we just don't understand it, or is is it a fact that Russia's outdone us? Well, I don't know that 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 uh, we don't understand it. I think there were certainly people who saw him, saw KGB in his eyes, uh, and, and, and nothing else. Uh, having said that, it, wasn't, it was not entirely clear what he would do. And B, it's not entirely clear what we might have done. This is one of the problems of, of dealing with him and, and, and dealing with the world in this day and age. We know that when we move unilaterally, we run into problems, and we try to do it. We, we try to act with allies. Um, after 2000 uh, and, and after 9/11, uh, and, and we haven't even made reference to that. Everything changed. Um, uh, Carl was critical of the, the Bush administration for for uh, for not focusing earlier on the Middle East. Well, we got as far in the in the one year as the administration is right now. Um, with uh, with all of its effort, and the re but the reason for that is that we had 9/11 that became all consuming. We spent the first half hour talking about NSA and and what what appear to be some significant overreaching there. Why did that happen? It happened because of 9/11 and because we were afraid that we were under attack and going to continue to be under attack constantly. And we made changes to the laws that, that violated civil, the previously existing uh, civil liberties. Um, and, and, uh, but we're, so we're in this situation now. I don't feel sorry for the president for, for having been left this stuff. People, when they, seek, worse. when they seek the job of president, don't 
uh, aren't promised an easy time. Uh, stuff happens in the world, and they have to go and struggle and fight and deal with the recalcitrant people in the Congress, within their own party, within the society. Um, it's, uh, it's not a job for the faint of heart uh, or the relatively inexperienced. But even if you have a world of experience, there's no guarantee of success. Congressman Al. Well, the question you asked, and, and I said yes, I think we, we've slipped a little bit in terms of prestige internationally. Uh, but I think you have to keep in mind it's a whole different world uh, in which we're fighting foreign policy uh, than we really starting with the Second World War, maybe with the First World War. We, we, we knew who the enemy was. It was clear-cut, uh, and uh, we were able to um, create policy around very concrete kinds of uh, allies and enemies and so forth. And since the demise of the USSR, it's been much more murky, and then you have these terrorist groups that are coming at us from all directions, and you have no idea exactly who they are and what they're up to and what they want and how to deal with them. And so the president's got all of those new things on the, the table that, that started under Bush. I mean, they, they, they started occurring under uh, and, and, and so I think that whoever is president now, it cannot be measured against uh, FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Carl Tubman. Well, <clears throat> that's, that's all well and good. I, can, I, I think that over the last three or four weeks, the president has acted very, very well. He has... He has uh, gotten NATO, gotten the European Union behind him. Uh, they asked today that uh, the European Union increase their defense uh, 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 contracts, etc., uh, to help, help uh, fight this, this, this battle for a possible battle. So, and I think that he's, he's patched up his, I think this has patched up his uh, uh, Maybe disagreements with Andrea Merkel and others, because they're they're all they all seem to be working very well together at this point. Yeah. Hopefully, well, hopefully that'll that'll keep moving forward this way. But Congressman Al, you know when when we do look, I mean the, the situations that that the Obama administration are dealing with are not situations that one we could have predicted, and if we could, it would have been a great crystal ball because I would have used them in my. NCAA tournament bracket, <laughs> but the reality still dictates is, you know, looking forward, you know, Obama has been trying to at least understand the, the relationship between us and Moscow. Uh, the Obama administration has, has tried to patch up some of our credibility in the Middle East with our allies, namely uh, Saudi Arabia, namely with Qatar. Yemen, etc. But it, it seems that the bigger picture, when we look at Syria, that in a time when the world is looking at America saying, okay, where do we go from here, we don't have an answer. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that we don't have an answer. I think we have a different answer than we used to have to these things. They, you know, you, you used to kind of 
do your foreign policy with a lot of arms rattling in the background. Uh, this president is trying diplomacy probably to a greater extent than uh, anyone in, in our lifetime uh, on an international basis. Now, how successful will it be? We don't know. It doesn't have the, it doesn't appear to have the strength of saying we're going to send in the Fifth Army or whatever the appropriate thing is. Uh, but it may, uh, it may be that that Putin, by playing it the old way, may in fact end up hurting himself much worse than uh, than he appears to at this point in time. But uh, let me bring this up, Carl Tuvin. You know, when we look at this, you know, we we look at the progress that. Uh, the Clinton administration made with trying to get Middle East folks to talk, he was successful. We looked at the, even the Bush administration, where a lot of people thought that the Bush administration was not going to be successful, and they were successful at least getting them, in, getting them to the table and beginning the dialogue. Now, it seems, with the latest revelation coming out of several news sources, that the, um, that the, that the U.S. government is going to offer up uh, David Pollard as a pawn to get everybody back to the table, that to me sounds like we're trying to buy our way back to the poker table. Well, <clears throat> let me say this. As a, I won't say a student, but as someone who has observed these negotiations for years, it is a very tough situation. Arafat called President Clinton the uh, day before he day before he uh, left the White House, and Arafat said to him, Mr. President, you're going to go down in history as one of the great presidents of the United States. And Clinton said, uh, Clinton said to him, yes, that would be true if you had signed the peace treaty. And he said, because you didn't sign the peace treaty, that isn't going to happen. Now, he didn't sign the peace treaty because as people from the other side tell me, he was, he was, he felt that if he had signed the peace treaty, that his life was, was worth nothing because someone would kill him, would assassinate him. And that may be true, but we're at a point right now where the open dialogue, Alan Moore, between Washington and Tel Aviv, where we could, we, we did have standing, where we did have the mojo, <clears throat> excuse me, to get everybody around the table and show cause for why they should get around the table by offering up a, a convicted spy of one of our allies as a as a, a poker chip. Does that make sense? Or does yeah. that show that we're maybe losing our ground? I'll tell you one thing it shows. It shows we're running out of poker chips. When we're offering up this guy, he's been in prison almost uh, for 27 years now, um, uh, he uh, he was a true he was a true traitor, um, uh, he, but he's a cause celeb in in, uh, in Israel among particularly certain circles in Israel, and and uh, Netanyahu is basically saying uh, we're not going to give the Palestinians what they want to come back to the table, so they're not going to come back to the table, so we're done, and we're desperately trying to keep these conversations going. So gee, what what could we have? What can we give to Netanyahu that might cause him to give to uh, to the Palestinians what they want, so they'll come back to the table about all we've got? All we got left is is Pollard. So now apparently we're talking about giving him up now 
to keep conversations going for some period of months. Once you've used that chip, then you're out of chips it, 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 when you're talking about chips. Now, we've got a lot that, that Israel needs, needless to say. We provide an enormous amount of economic, political, diplomatic support, weaponry, and, 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 and so on. I, 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 I don't know whether this, is, this, this particular deal makes, makes any sense or not. It just looks weak on his face. The thing I wanted to say, though, about something Al said, which I think is just completely correct, is prior to 9-11, we, didn't, we, we never really had an enemy that we, that we thought was both uh, not connected to another country and capable of pulling off really horrible stuff on our shores. I mean, we'd had some bombings and some incidents that, that were precursors to 9-11, but 9-11 was here. It was home. And we couldn't, we could, we could not get many of the other countries in the world to join in on this war on terror. It's like, well, no, no, they're mad at you, and if we join you, they're going to be mad at us too. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and the world, as Al says, has really has changed. Now, Russia, interestingly, is a country where we, we do know who they are and where, and where they are, but we're not going to send troops over there. We're not going to put, put our guys on the other side of Ukraine or even inside Ukraine. Now, and, 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 and Putin isn't going isn't to just com- be, be completely provocative. It does, he does pay attention when the Europeans, I mean, call wants to give Obama credit for the Europeans' decision, which is very, very self-interest-driven to, uh-oh, maybe we do need a little stronger military than we had before. Believe me, this is no favor to Obama. This is them looking around thinking, oh, crap. Oh, my God. Oh, crap. He, he's pretty serious over here. We've been cutting back and cutting back and relying on the Americans and relying on, on these economic ties which are powerful and strong and, and have changed the, the, uh, the whole environment too. But, but I, I think that, that we're still trying to figure out how to deal in, in, in the world today in Europe with our allies against Russia and then in places like Syria and Egypt. And well, because now, you know, when we talk about Russia, we talk about the loss of mojo, uh, one of the criticisms that, uh, that the Bush administration had when they were in power was that there's no question that Russia's al-Qaeda is the Chechen rebellion going on in the Chechnya section of Russia. They've had several tragic events, the bombing of a theater, uh, the, the horrible senseless attack on a children's school and where several children lost. There were criticisms saying that we didn't do enough to offer our moral and just international diplomatic support to Russia when they had those incidents of terrorism, whereas on 9-11, Russia was right there next to us saying, we're going to go kick them in the butt. Did we miss the marker, and could that have been a reason why we might have strained some ties between Moscow and, and, and what we're dealing with now? Well, I wasn't aware that there was a big issue over that, and that may be my inattention. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, Russia 
Russia could almost be insulted by something like that. I mean, there is an incredible amount of pride. Look at look at the Olympics and everything they did there. Uh, so I, I I'm just not sure that that's that's correct. Alan Moore, what do you your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I I probably wouldn't have characterized it quite the way the way you did. I mean, we they weren't so much looking for our help with their these internal attacks, and they sure weren't going to get our support in the way they cracked down uh, on Chechnya uh, in a very big way. We can be very sympathetic to terrorist acts, but that doesn't that doesn't automatically mean that we're going to say fine. Remove all civil liberties and and kick ass all over this country um, uh, because of some absolute terrible horrible things that have occurred. Um, and at the same time, after 9/11, although they were sympathetic, they didn't really join in our war on terror. They pushed back on that. They weren't sure what that meant, and they don't trust us. And they have some reasons not to trust us. No, that makes that makes sense. You know, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back. Uh, today is the deadline to register for the Affordable Care Act. At least we thought it was. The president today announced that, well, yeah, we're going to push the deadline a little bit. It's kind of squishy. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. <laughs> Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to switch gears, bring it back domestically, and we're going to talk about, hey, it's uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, and you know that deadline that you had to register for the Affordable Care Act? Well, April Fool's, it's actually not really today. There are certain caveats, but the president came out in the Rose Garden, made a great speech with everybody there jumping up and down as the success. Nancy Pelosi issued a statement earlier saying that as of right now, there are now 7 million people inside uh, the Affordable Care Act premises, and it is just widely successful, and happiness runs amok. Alan Moore, do you buy that story? <laughs> well, it's... Look, the, 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 the number of apparent sign-ups is bigger than, than they thought it was going to be uh, just a few weeks ago. So that's one good thing from their standpoint. Uh, his, the, the, the additional delay, there have been 28 or 29 different kinds of delays. Um, uh, this one made some sense. It was announced about a week ago because they knew there was going to be this crush, and they basically said, look, if you're in the queue and you can't get finished, um, we will keep this open for a little while longer. They're talking April 15th. Well, that makes sense. And it turns out there were a lot of people in the queue. Hundreds of thousands of people showed up. Uh, nothing like the, 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 the procrastinators that, that we Americans are. But the question is, who are, how many of the 7 or 7 million, 7.1 million they're now reporting who have, quote, signed up, how many of them paid? And we know that it's somewhere around 80%. So you lose some there. The real question, though, with, with, with all of this, remember what the objective was. One, get insurance coverage to more people. How many people who weren't covered before are now in? It's going to take a long time, months and months and months, before we really have an answer to that. And the other question is, um, uh, can, we, can we dampen down costs at all? That remains to be seen. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned about that because the group that signed up is mostly the, the group with heavy subsidies, the people with pre-existing conditions, very deserving people, but not the people who make the money, who make the numbers work in this, in this whole enterprise. And if the numbers don't work, then it's going to hit everybody. And there were lots of promises made, not just about you have your plan, you like your plan, you keep your plan, but... We're, we're going to save you all money. Well, you don't save everybody a lot of money if you don't get the right mix of people in. All you're getting in is people you subsidize, um, and then you can't serve the people who are already out there. And you, and, and you jack up the coverage, which is a nice idea, better coverage than, than a lot of people used to have. It's not free. So there's a lot of financial surprises still in store uh, the rest of this year, next year, and beyond. But, uh, you know, Congressman Allen, in the President's statement uh, today, he pretty much did a, a victory lap in, in some opinions. Uh, according to uh, his statement today, he said, quote, no, the Affordable Care Act hasn't fixed our long-term broken health care system, but this law has made our broken system a lot better, quote-unquote. He basically came out and said that Armageddon has not arrived. Has he, has he pushed away far enough and convinced enough Americans that this is the right way to go, that, in fact, his political Armageddon of the failure of ACA, he's out of the forest in that? I suspect that over time you'll find that he has. 
Uh, I don't think it ha it's not going to happen like that. It's not going to be dramatic. <clears throat> but as people calm down uh, and begin to move toward acceptance of this, I think uh, he's going he's to come out of it all right. Uh, Alan Moore, do you think that he's out of the force when it comes to his political arm again? No, 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 no. He, he, uh, it, it, it's going to take months and years, and and uh, and hopefully it's going to take some coming together among among uh, Republicans and Democrats to take a look and say, okay, here's some things. If you, you may not like the program, the the overall structure, but it's not going to. That's not going to be eliminated. Here's some things that need to be changed. Can we can we make those changes? Um, and and is it going to do everything that he thought and hoped? No. But is it going to do a lot of good things? Absolutely. There's a lot of people out there. We we, we we have to remember this. A lot of people who could not get health insurance. Now they can get it. Some of them aren't bothering to buy it, and the healthy healthy younger people are saying. I'm not buying it, but Al, one time, we've got this crazy system that we've had in place for, for a couple of decades where we said if you're a hospital that takes Medicare, and that's just about all of them, then you have to serve anybody who walks in the door whether or not they have insurance. Well, why buy insurance? Do you have insurance? It's sort of like everybody's covered. It's just that a lot of people aren't paying for it, and as Al once said, maybe we need to change that and get these freeloaders out of the system. But the, and, but well, the and, 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 and we haven't fully eliminated that phenomenon. We haven't said, no, you can't come in. So we've got with young people. Young people say, wait a minute. This costs a lot more than my cell phone service. The president's famous, you know, for the cost of a cell phone. You can get covered. They, they don't get covered. They pay a relatively small penalty. And then if they're sick, they go to the to the emergency room for a while, and then they can sign up if they're but, really But, sick. Alan, even as, as late as today, mm -hmm. White House Press Secretary Jay Carter called the 40% uh, you know, invincible sign-up a red herring. That, in fact, that the number is just a number that was thrown out there by CBO, and it, it does not reflect reality that that 40% number, ACA, the Affordable Care Act, will sustain as long as it needs to go. It but is here, it's going to stay around. Every, I love the fact that from the right through the middle to the left, everybody plays, they, they, they accentuate the numbers they like, and they're dismissive of the numbers they don't like. Oh, 7 million. That's too high a number. No, that's too low a number. No, our 6 million is our new target. Uh, this is from the administration. That number is a CBO number. It's not that relevant. And then all of a sudden, we got there. We got seven million. And then, and then the question will be, how many of them actually paid and are truly signed up? This numbers business is something that's going to have to sort out over time. I'm not saying 40 percent. I'm not saying 35 percent. The numbers I've heard and seen are that that maybe 20 to 25 percent of those signing up are these are the so-called young invincibles, and we know we needed a bunch of them, but I don't know how much that matters. But Carl Tubin, at the same time, Jay Carney is also saying that, look, we have no death panels. Uh, the president said that the existence of death panels, that's all for naught. It does, it's not happening in his statement in the Rose Garden. 
and, and basically, Jay Carney did, according to one article I'm seeing in Politico, said, hey, Democrats, get on board. This thing's working. You need to tap this in your political campaigns here in the midterms. Is the rest of America or the rest of the Democrats that need to have this coattail signed off on the fact that, hey, I'm going to be touting the success of the Affordable Care Act? I don't know if they're signed on <clears throat> now. I think they could be signed on uh, in, in several months. Uh, I think with all the things that uh, the Republicans have put Obama through, including the 41 or 42 or 43 times that they vote to to uh, get rid of Obamacare in the House of Representatives and not done other things, <clears throat> I think this is a pretty good day. It, it had a rough start, just as Social Security had a rough start, um, and, and, and that worked out over the years. It worked out over the years. This had a rough start. It's getting better, and we'll just have to see what the future brings. Congressman Al. There were an awful lot of Republicans that were dead certain this would be a disaster. And I, they talked as though they expected the collapse of it by <coughs> and it, it somehow refuses to collapse. Uh, there were also Democrats who were saying with great confidence this will work. And I don't know what they were smoking to, be, to, to develop that certainty. The fact is, and I think Alan referred to this, is we're going to know whether this worked or not a long time from now. And it's going to be long after anybody can get any particular political advantage out of it. Uh, if, it's, if it's enormously successful, it will be old his ancient history for the Democrats. If it turns out to not have worked very well, the Republicans may be able to limp along with criticizing it for a few years. They, they, t they tend to be very tenacious when they get something that they think is negative. Uh, uh, but I, I, I have never, never said, by God, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and it will work. Because I don't have any information that would tell me that. But I also think that it's uh, a little... Uh, self-interested on the part of the Republicans to assure everybody it won't work because they don't know that either. Alan Moore? I'll said it. I said it. Then Al said it. it and, and I don't think anybody around this table is, has, has ever said it'll never work. It has been said that there are a bunch of problems here and, one of the, and, and we're going to find out and it's going to take a long time. Um, there, were some true, there was a true believer or two around the table. Oh, it's going to work. This is going to be one of his great legacies. Maybe. Now, I, I venture to say this. If five years from now, we, it, it's, 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 it's in... 15 it's, million, it's, 20 million have it's, signed it's, up. It, it's in the society. Then the Republicans will be saying, yeah, it works, because we fixed it. Valid <laughs> 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 oh, point. Very valid point. But, but Carl, too, and this is definitely a victory lap for the president, is it premature? I don't think it's premature. I mean, I think, it's you know, it's a, it's a very happy day, and, and, and he's taking advantage of yeah. something that uh, they, they set a goal, and whether they went back or forward or sideways, they made the goal they wanted to make 7 million people 
signed up for maybe seven million plus. And the Republicans have been using every opportunity to tear it down, and the president is using every opportunity to build it up because you've got an election coming, and that's about the extent of the validity of all of that. Alan Moore. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the Florida special election of just a few weeks ago showed the power of Obamacare because it, 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 that election was, was pretty much about Obamacare, and a Republican The David won. Jolly and Alex Singh election. It was, and it was something of a surprise, so that, that, that got everybody's attention. Now there's some good news. Of course they're going to run a victory lap, but not the victory lap, a victory lap. In politics, whenever you can run a victory lap, you run a victory lap because you know that you're going to get tripped and you know, fall down the road, and then you'll get up and you'll get another victory lap down the road. This is, this is a day that, that they're going to celebrate, and they can celebrate a little more than they might have because everybody, including a lot of Democrats, were, were nervous just a month ago that they would never get to this kind of a number. So the, the, the details of the number, that'll come out later, and then somebody else will be running a victory lap, I suspect. See, it didn't happen here, but give them their day. They got a big number, and they, had, they, they crashed the website yesterday because, <laughs> because hundreds of thousands of procrastinators were finally thinking, geez, I better go, I better go do this or at least learn about it. Carl Dubin? There were some polls this morning that, that showed, I think it was 41%, and it was way down a, a, a few weeks ago. So people have 41% of, of Americans like Obamacare might even been a little higher. So wow, people, I want to see those so numbers. People, so people are coming You're talking out. about a 20-point jump? I, some I thought it was a little higher than Actually, yeah. I think that I think there was they, they had, a, they had a, the ones I saw was a breakdown with Republicans and Democrats. The, the Democrats now are about 50 50, 50, 50 yeah. are, which is a which huge, is a huge jump from jump from where they were, and the Republicans <laughs> still aren't. But you know that's 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 why these 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 momentary polls are so unhelpful <laughs> because we everybody runs a little yeah. baby victory lap. Oh, yeah. bad poll. Oh, good poll. Um, but, uh, you know, they're going to take advantage, and what they're going to do and what they have to do is keep saying, look at the people who are now covered, all these lives that we've saved and improved. Did we do it in the smart way? Was it worth the trillion dollars that this is going to cost over 10 years? Nobody even talks about the cost and how that works. It's like, good thing, bad thing, oh, deficits, who cares, let somebody else pay. But, but Congressman Al, you know, everybody's talking about fiscal austerity, they're talking about, you know, out of control fiscal spending, and the trillion dollars, again, going off what Alan said, seems to elude the administration of saying, how are we going to pay for this? Elude the administration? I mean, I, 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 how many Republicans have voted against something like the agriculture bill? You know, and I still would like to see a breakdown of the people who voted to maintain Saturday mail delivery, uh, which staggers. That's coming from somebody who doesn't read their emails on a daily basis. <laughs> that's that's right. That's why you want Saturday I delivery. I don't read I don't read my mail on a daily basis either. <laughs> because the, the the question still comes up: how how are we going to pay for it? in these sensitive economic times? That, that, is, that is a question that you can apply to our military, 
to uh, Medicaid, uh, to education. That is the big question that we have failed to approach. And I think both parties are equally at fault at ducking and bobbing and weaving and going off to something else and kicking the can and doing all of that stuff rather than sitting down and saying, okay, what are we going to do and how are we going to work out the compromises? Alan Moore? So, yeah, on the cost thing. So let's, let's remember that, that the way the Affordable Care Act was set up, it, quote, paid for itself. And pay, but, but that's but far it, from true. No, 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 no. Actually, it, 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 you know, CBO is the arbiter of this. It pays for itself with very significant tax increases at the high end, something that the wealthy folks get zero credit for, but they're, they're paying a lot of money. Medical equipment manufacturers are paying a lot of money. Health insurers are paying a lot of money. Medicare or hospitals are giving something back, and then lots of individuals are signing up. So this thing, quote, pays its way in a way, but the question is, is that the right way to go about raising taxes on wealthy people, for example, just to pay for Affordable Care Act? And you and I will disagree. I would say yes, and you right. would say hell no. And I would say that 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 when you start doing things one at a time and piecemeal and, and demagogue certain parts of the society, I'd say, look, I'd rather reform the tax system, Social Security, and Medicare and, and, and use these higher revenues in that bigger picture rather than say, okay, we're going to go create all these new benefits in the health sector. We're, we're not going to reform the sector, we're going to add millions of people to it rather than reform it and suck up a lot of the revenue that was conceivably there for major entitlement reform. I would agree with you in the essence of what you said, which is... I'll take that. Here we go. <laughs> Gloves are off now. Which, which, which is, but apply it to everything. Yeah. Uh, not, not just the health care. I, I think it's insane that we do not sit down and go through the committee system on on the entitlements and start working on the entitlements of the subcommittee and start, you know, and solve those things first. What we're doing is we're moving ahead as though the entitlements are going to take care of themselves and almost any brilliant idea anybody comes up with is going to cost money. Yep. And it's going to be popular because it's going to cost money. And we're going to pass and make our problems worse. And when are we going to get to, to the really difficult stuff? And that's the entitlements. And it's going to be difficult for Republicans. And it's going to be difficult for Democrats. Because it's going to have to include some of their sacred cows in the cuts. And, and what we've done with the Affordable Care Act is we've created a new entitlement. We've expanded Medicaid to by millions of people, and we've created these significant subsidies for middle and, and lower income folks to buy insurance. So we're moving in the wrong direction on subsidies 
And the only thing we did in this case is we said, well, we're going to create all these, these new sets of entitlements, but we're going to pay for it over here with higher taxes. I think that's uh, what I said, only you yes. said it differently. Yeah, but, but, we, but, we still, but we still see a situation, though. You know, we've got Paul Ryan, who's introduced uh, some possible changes to Medicare that are going to be coming out in his, uh, in his budget plan uh, for, for the next fiscal year. And yet, without even knowing the details, Democrats are pushing back saying, no, 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 that's not going to work because it's going to take away for fair medical coverage for Americans just on a broad brush. Of course, and that is inevitably what the, where the starting point is going to be. And it's the reason you need to shove that down to the appropriate subcommittee and start working out the bullshit and figuring out how you're going to be able to get the job done. Family show, Al. Just let you know, children might be listening on their cars. Thank you. Anyway, but when, you know what? I remember my two-year-old daughter stubbing her toe and saying, summon a bitch. <laughs> and I wonder where she learned that. I know exactly where she learned it, Congressman Al. Thank you, Grandpa. And then Grandpa told her <laughs> how to say it. How to Correctly. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Some bitch. <laughs> Again, family show. Good Lord. Good grief. Carl Tubin, look. The, the reality is that I, I don't think there are many Americans that would argue that health care is broken, that the people that need coverage are getting substandard coverage. But this is a situation, again, where the government just comes in one fall and swoop and tries to save the day at the expense of just about everything else that needs federal spending. Is there some way that the Democrats could actually spin this and keep this from being a political bombshell in midterms coming up, as we saw in Florida? Well, <clears throat> I think there is. I think, I think that, you know, this is, we're in a transitory situation now between what we had before, which was many, 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 many people uninsured going to hospitals, using the emergency room as their personal uh, doctor and not being able to pay for it. Now we're going to have a situation where people are covered, they'll be able to go to the emergency room, and the hospital will get paid. And, and hopefully that'll cut down some of our health costs. <clears throat> I think that uh, I think it, we've, been, we've been trying to get national health insurance in this country for a long, long time. Very true. Goes, right, it goes way back. And, and, you know, I've said this before, we all know it, that uh, Kennedy said in his uh, in his biography that he should have he should have said yes to President Nixon right. when he had national health insurance Kennedy, on Kennedy. his agenda right. and and he said no because it wasn't enough and he thought if if I had done that incrementally it could have grown. Alan Moore, the number seven point one million. Uh, there's been questions before about the validity of these numbers. Do you buy the numbers? Well, I have no reason, and it would be really idiotic for the administration to, to create a number out of whole cloth. I, I have no, no reason to question that something on the order of 7.1 million people have, in fact, signed up as of midnight last night for coverage under the Affordable Care Act. There are two questions. One, how many of that 7.1 million actually made a payment? Estimates, 
prior to yesterday were that around 80% were actually sending in the check. So that that's a big big number off the top. I don't know what's what the final number is going to be. But the, the, the other question is, who are they? Not just their age and so on, but but are they people who didn't have coverage before, or are they people who uh, have switched coverage from whatever they had before, and maybe it was a canceled policy, um, we don't know, and, and, and now have coverage. Because the whole idea behind this, remember, was take that 30, 35 million people who, who don't have insurance, who go to the emergency room, um, and, and then have, can be very miserable in, in, in the, the pressure they get thereafter and the level of service and so on. Um, uh, how many uninsured are left after this thing sorts itself out in a year or two? Believe me, there will be tens of millions of uninsured people when we're done, which, which is going to be, in a, in, a, in a very broad way, disappointing, but it's also going to keep the pressure on so many circles to say, well, we tried that, it helped, it was expensive, it didn't get the job done, time for true national health insurance. That, that debate is not in any way settled, um, but it's, you know, we're buying time here, we're learning about this, we're, we're learning a lot during this process, and we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars for those lessons. Congressman Al? Let me add that. I don't totally disagree with that. <clears throat> but it seems to me that it's going to take time, and this is going to have to be adjusted many, many times. And one of the reasons is it never went through the process in the Congress where compromises could be worked out. It is essentially a democratic program, yep. period. There's no Republican input, uh, significant Republican input. And I think that the Republicans, amazingly, might have had a good idea here or there that would have improved the program. Uh, and so we're going to have to go back and insert those things over time uh, to make it uh, to make it work. If, if it survives, yeah. we're going to have yeah. to do that. Around the table, uh, does Obamacare help or hurt Democrats in the midterm election? Congressman Al? It will depend on the district, but I would say that uh, except in the most, most, most conservative districts, it will tend to help. Alan Moore? No, I think it. I think it's a net negative, not a massive negative. I, again, I look at the, the Florida experience. Uh, 2016, different matter. Right. Carl Duman? Uh, I think it's 50-50 whether it will help or hurt. Does the defense actually hurt when you write it that way? <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, the correct answer is it's going to hurt Democrats. It's going to be a net negative for them in the midterms. There, I just did my John McLaughlin imitation. <laughs> Uh, when we come back... You sound <coughs> a hell of a lot nicer than he does. I, I tend to do that from time to time. When we come back, we're going to take it a little bit of a local view. Uh, for those who don't know, today is Democratic Primary Day, or as many in Washington, D.C. call it Election Day, uh, for the mayoral office here in Washington, D.C. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the local politics here in D.C. and why America should care about the D.C. mayor's race. This is Backroom Politics Live. From Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. 
Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to change gears right now. We're going to talk a little bit, a li- a little bit about local politics happening here in the District of Columbia uh, and why Americans should care about this. So, for those of you who don't know, D.C. is a largely Democratic city, and they're having their Democratic primary for several uh, citywide offices, including the office of mayor. For those of you who have not been watching, uh, mayor, the current mayor, Vince Gray, is seeking a second term in office, but he is following several scandals that have plagued his tenure as the chief executive of the District of Columbia. And what are we looking for? I got, I got people looking all over the place for, oh, for cell phones. There we go. I got people turning this place over like a, like a prison cell. Because they want to make calls while you carry on. Panic moment. Oh, good, good grief. So anyway, for those of you... For those of you who are concerned, the, uh, the primaries today, which pretty much guarantees the winner of the primary will win in the general election in November, so the person who gets elected today more than likely will be the mayor. Uh, but it is a crowded field of seven politicians and civilians, and it looks like now a two-way race between the current mayor, Vince Gray, and a member of the city council, Muriel Bowser, who has been a city councilman trying to knock off Vince Gray for over a year right now. And it is a sordid race. The big question is, number one, with all of the ethics problems, Alan Moore, that that has faced the Gray administration and City Hall here in D.C., Muriel Bowser's gone on a huge election trail uh, stomping ground about we've got to change the ethics policies. Why do Americans want to see this race come to a, a solid conclusion? And why should Americans care about what happens in D.C.? Where should they? Well, let's be honest. Most Americans don't know and don't care. Lots of people in the region don't know and don't care. D.C. cares enormously because the politics in this city, again, are an embarrassment. There there are several D.C. council members who are now in jail. They resigned and had to to step down in disgrace. Including three, I think. The the number is three right now, including the former city council chairman, Kwame Brown. Right. So so we've got got that. Then we've got a mayor who, in 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 a phrase that lawyers often use, was fruit of a poisonous tree, meaning... His campaign people, the, the, the campaign that elected him over a fairly successful, if not altogether popular, former mayor named Adrian Fenty, there were people committing felonies on his behalf to get him elected. Allegedly. No, 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 no. No, not... not oh, you're talking about the ones that have been already I'm talking indicted. about the people who were involved in his campaign and have copped pleas to felony counts for doing things for this mayor to help him get reelected, to get, help him get elected in the first place. He's been reasonably successful as a mayor, but he's also had the good fortune of following a guy who laid some good groundwork. He's followed a lot of that groundwork, and he's been lucky in terms of what the economy in this region has done. So he's had this, you know, I'll give him, I'll give him credit on the one hand, but, but the, the behavior of the people in his name and on his behalf um, was so outrageous that he is, in my judgment, disqualified. And if that weren't enough, 
he, for over a year, has refused to sit down with the federal prosecutor who has been investigating this case, the U.S. Attorney's Office, to, to answer questions. He simply gives denials and lame apologies. Jim, sorry that pe these people did this stuff uh, on my behalf. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. The, the only, he may win. Muriel Bowser, it's a two-person race, although the other people will siphon out some votes. If Gray wins, it is not... It, it's not an absolute certainty that, that he wins the general election because he may well get indicted Interesting point. between now and the general, and his opponent will be a credible person. But, you know, let's look at this. So you've, got, you've got a mayor in Vince Gray that was coming off of a, a lame duck mayor, Adrian Fenty. I mean, this is a city where race plays a card in all politics. This is still a largely... African-American base uh, voting electorate. You've got a, a former mayor in Adrian Fenty who Congressman now was looked at as basically a shell for those in northwestern Washington, D.C., which is a very affluent area of D.C. There are many that felt that he ignored the other side of the river, quote-unquote, where there's a large African-American. He's a very talented, uh, a very effective mayor who was arrogant beyond belief and uh, turned everybody off. But does, does the race card come into play enough here to whereas they could forgive Vince Gray of some of his misdoings and allow him to continue but in? he's running against a black woman. Interesting point. But he, uh, but, but he is trying to, in subtle ways, play the race card. Um, only in, wa in Washington, D.C., can you take a thoroughly discredited embarrassment to the city, former mayor, Marion Barry, who now sits on the city council. You take that person, he endorses the, 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 the current mayor, the current mayor and it actually helps him. That sums up the bizarreness of, of this city. So again, I go back to my question is, why should Americans care about this? Is this a matter of media-driven electorate can get anything that it wants, regardless of the fact of the ethical standing of the, of the candidates? No. Con well, comment ahead, out yeah. first. No, I don't think so. I, I, I think what's playing out here, and the reason it's important to America, is uh, the, the last throes of, of the results of... of uh, pre-civil rights points. In this. The reason Marion Barry got elected, even though he practically got elected in jail, uh, and he did spend some time in jail, mm -hmm. and it was because all the white people were picking on him, and uh, the black people said, uh, we're not going to let you get away with that. Now, that isn't quite the same situation that you have now. Uh, but I think, I, and, and I, I am hopeful that uh, it will, that the woman will be elected. Muriel Bowser. Yes. So that, because it'll be one more step away from this uh, pre-civil rights kind of agony that this, racial agony that this city goes through. And, but Alan Moore, you're talking of Muriel Bowser, though. Muriel Bowser has gotten a, 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 a little bit of a chink in her armor 
only because of the fact that she has close ties to former Mayor Adrian Fenty. The fear is that arrogance, that cockiness, and that uh, assuasion to Northwest D.C. versus, let's say, Southeast D.C., the divide will grow even larger unless we get somebody like of Vince Gray, who's backed by a Marion Barrett. Well, this is the narrative that, that, that Gray has now turned to. He, he goes, he, he's been quoted uh, saying, don't let those other people tell you how to vote. You know in your heart of hearts who knows you, who understands you, who cares about you, and will fight for you. Um, this is an ironic, it's ironic that the, that the Washington Post, which has endorsed Muriel Bowser, may well not have done her a favor because it feeds this narrative that, 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 that Gray is, uh, is trying to use now to say, I didn't know what people were, were doing on my behalf. I've done a great job for you. Don't let them at the Washington Post and those other rich parts of the city don't let them tell you how to vote and, and determine the outcome. You need to go to the polls, vote for the guy who understands you, who's from this area, and who will fight for you. And, and, uh, and it's, his, it's his best hope. On the here, Congressman Al. And here's, here's a, a thing that may, may help Gray. I, I have a, a good friend who is uh, uh, not, not an elite black by any matter of means. Uh, who thinks that the current mayor is a farce, but he's not going to vote. Uh-huh. So if, if it's not that all the black people are going to vote for black people, it's that a lot of the black people are maybe so fed up with the whole damn thing that they just aren't going to vote at all. And and I'm not exactly sure who that benefits then, but it seems to me it doesn't hurt. We'll, we'll all be geniuses in another day or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but again, you know, when we look at at, at at politics at the local level having national significance, Alan Moore, you're talking about a city that is literally the boundaries of the center of federal government. A lot of the things, whether it's school closings, whether it's street closures, whether it's uh, taxation issues, they have effects outward, outside the parameters, outside the boundaries of the District of Columbia. This is also reflective of a lot of urban politics that we've seen. Well, it, I mean, people watch what happens in D.C., but remember, we have this bizarre, we have this bizarre document called the Constitution of the United States, which which does not give rep voting representation in the Congress to residents of D.C. and reserves to the Congress ultimate power over decision-making in, in D.C. This is a true anachronism in every, in, in every sense, and it drives a lot of the locals crazy, but it does mean that, that the Congress can step in and say, uh, you can't do this. You want to legalize marijuana, you want to outlaw guns, you want to do this, you want to do that. Actually, we're going to take that power away from you. They, they are more and more hesitant to do it, especially the sort of the libertarian strain of, of, among the Republicans realize the rank hypocrisy in saying, let individuals decide, let individuals decide. Oh, except when it comes to the voters in Washington, D.C., we don't, we I, I don't trust them. I'm delighted to hear that you 
recognize the hypocrisy. <laughs> but but uh, Al, it, 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 it seems to me, Congressman, that especially in this time where you've got a major urban center in Washington, D.C., you have its residents that are taxed with federal taxes as well as city taxes, Yet, with those federal taxes, we, unlike Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, the Virgin Islands, don't have a, we don't have, we don't have a vote in Congress, but we still pay federal taxes. You would think that that would be a key pressure point in this race. That seems to have eluded a lot of people in this race. Well, That's it, a it eludes it because it doesn't ever go anywhere. And the reason it doesn't go anywhere is that uh, whoever was elected, to uh, let, let's say it's it's one seat in the House that they would uh, give uh, voting rights to, that will be a Democrat. So the Republicans are against it. It's the old thing between Hawaii and Alaska, and they finally worked out a compromise on that in letting them into the union because Hawaii was Democratic and Alaska was Republican. Uh, so I I I, I think we can. Uh, you, you and I will be uh, drooling in our wheelchairs in the old folks' home uh, when they finally give uh, D.C. the vote. Interesting, but Alan Moore, when we look at the diversity of D.C., this is not the D.C. of <clears throat> the early 1970s during the riots or the late 60s during the riots back then. This is now a very economically diverse. You've got uh, some of the highest commercial real estate prices in the country now inside D.C., but yet <clears throat> that affluence seems to elude parts of the city to all, all measures of thinking. Well, it seems to well, me that, 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 that Fenty, for all of his arrogance and what have you, really set the, uh, the city on the right track. And the current mayor, as somebody else had mentioned, has kind of picked up on those and moved it. The city's in, a bit in better shape now than it was two mayors ago. Now the question is, who's the best person to move that ahead? And I think, given the amount of corruption that has been found in the current government, it should be somebody new. The big question in my mind is, the last time we... Uh, uh, elected someone that was pure and uh, and uh, untouched and capable uh, and happened to be a woman, she turned out to be a disastrous mayor, uh, not through corruption or anything else. She just wasn't any good. But then we go back and we... So, 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 so what I don't understand is is what are the capabilities of this woman? I don't know her well enough. You know, we, do, we talk about Mar we, we talk about Marion Barry, we talk about Vince Ray, we talk about Adrian Fenty. Uh, the one name that never seems to get brought up a lot was the one mayor who, in many aspects, cleaned up City Hall a first time, and that's Anthony Williams. Anthony Williams was a big spur of the economic development in downtown, cleaned up where we sit here on F Street, just two blocks from the Capitol, before Anthony Williams, 14th Street was uh, a combat zone with hookers and drugs all over the place. Why can't we find another Anthony Williams in this city? Alan Moore? Well, or can we? I, you know, I, <laughs> I think that Adrian Fetty was a terrific mayor. He was also arrogant, and it caught up with him. 
I don't think he was in the pocket of one part of the city or another. He just was lazy when it came to doing some of the shoe leather, street level, local meeting activities that you have to participate in if you want to succeed over time. Yeah. And Vincent Gray... Just, just, just let me add this. You know, to, to be an effective political leader, you need to be able to sustain a certain amount of humiliation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. And you have to, and you have to bring in uh, some appointees who will do the same. He had a really creative and effective... Uh, head of the school system, a woman named Michelle Ree, who pissed off more people than the mayor did yeah. by her sort of uh, arrogance, know-it-all attitude, super bright, very effective, really set the school system on a new path with the mayor's support that, that the current mayor, in many ways, uh, has followed on. He appointed her deputy to, to, uh, to, to take over as a dancer and replace um, so who seems to have a little sense of, uh, of politics, absolutely, you know, and it's just it's just better in the uh, in the in the face to face interactions with with teachers and with and with parents out in the community. So you know, I really, you know, I I, I, I don't you know I, I think that Williams was a good man for the time, and I think that Fenty was a good if flawed mayor, I think Gray has been a pretty good executive. It's just that there is so much corruption around him and his refusal to answer questions to the U.S. Attorney becomes a measure of of the the public saying, how much will we put up with in, in terms of bad behavior to get somebody competent? Call I'm not gonna. I'm not taking sides, but I wonder uh, if the uh, U.S. attorney hadn't come out with this uh, other gentleman who uh, kind of turned state's evidence. What the uh, polls would show today? Well, right now the polls, according to Washington Post this morning, have uh, Adrian Fenty up by at least three points. Not Adrian. Not. Uh, uh, Vince Gray. I'm sorry, Vince Gray. They have Vince Gray up by three points over Mario Bowser. Uh, it's going to be an interesting time. But with that, it's time for me to switch gears and go to my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story where we go around the table and talk about any of the buzz, innuendo, and gossip we're hearing around the Beltway. Congressman Al, tell me a story. I haven't got one yet. Let's go around the table. All right, Alan Moore. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave America. I'm not going to go to the Middle East, and I'm not going to go to Europe. I'm going to go to Africa. Whoa! There we go. Okay. I'm going to go to Uganda, where a few weeks ago now, um, uh, there was a law passed in the parliament of Uganda with the support of its president, a man named Museveni, somebody who's been president now for almost 30 years. He's one of these, uh, uh, I think I like being president. I think I want to be president for life. He does, they do have elections there um, and, uh, and have opponents. He, he was a real leader in fighting HIV AIDS. He has been a coward and a failure in taking on a new law that criminalizes homosexual behavior. Homosexuality is sadly a major 
uh, method of, tra of, 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 of transit of HIV, um, and they, the, the parliament passed a law, and he signed it, and it criminalizes homosexuality, setting back significantly the fight against HIV and AIDS, not just in Uganda, but other countries in Africa are, are watching. A lot of them are very socially conservative. Now, other countries provide billions, not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions in assistance and investment in Uganda. The U.S. Is, supports it to the tune of more than $500 million a year, most of it on HIV and AIDS. This is a case where we can't stand by and do nothing. Even though harm comes when we withhold aid, they say, we're a sovereign nation, we get to do what we want. We get to say, we're a sovereign nation too. We get to decide who to help, how to help, and on what terms. This is a case where America has to say to Uganda, no, this is not, not acceptable. Time. There's going to be there's going to be costs other than words to pay. Wow. Uh, Carl Tubin, well, is it this decade? Yes. No. We have seen an interesting scenario played out in Las Vegas where <coughs> George Bush was there uh, with Flourish. I uh, don't know if he impressed uh, Mr. Adelson enough for Mr. Adelson to put his Millions or billions. I think you may mean Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush. Bush. Yeah, not, not George Bush. Right. Jeb Bush. Bush. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and if this happens, and if Jeb Bush becomes the nominee of the Republican Party, and Hillary becomes the nominee of the Democratic Party, we might have, for the first time, because of the families and their relationships, we might have, for the first time, real debates in this country where they talk about the issues. So you're promoting not, Jeb Bush to run for and, president. And not have this, this fighting that we get into in, in the debates uh, heretofore. Are you pushing for Jeb Bush to be not, the nominee of the I'm not pushing for Jeb Bush to, to, to be the nominee. I'm just saying it would be a very interesting situation. Oh, all right. Good story. Uh, so, uh, Bridgegate, a report came out last week by the state of New Jersey, which kind of fulfilled the prophecy of uh, Governor Chris Christie had no knowledge of Bridgegate or the shutting down of lanes leading from New Jersey into New York on the George Washington Bridge. Does this make Chris Christie the new, again, preeminent frontrunner in Republican politics for 2016? No, it doesn't. But what it does do is it does give Chris Christie some vindication. It does show that Chris Christie did not know, would not play in that cesspool of political backlashing. Look, he's from New Jersey. New Jersey invented political retaliation. This is minor league baseball, folks. Just telling you, Chris Christie's not done yet. He will come back. Chris Christie will be a player in 2016. Can he win it? Don't know yet. Out, Congressman now. It's very interesting to me how fast gay rights and marijuana have moved. And I think that all politicians are going to need to be aware that an issue, particularly with young people involved, can move 
really fast and change the the, the game considerably. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, just I feel a duty on the on the Chris Christie question just to remind everyone that the two people who know the most about what was done, why it was done, and conceivably what what uh, Governor Christie oh did. Oh my gosh, look at the time. We gotta go. It's they have not yet been talked to. Neither one of them. What are you saying, Alan? I'm saying... <laughs> we're There's not, a state report out of the state of New Jersey led by yet. a Democrat. You think, you think this thing still has legs? Absolutely. Until we hear from Bridget Kelly and that, uh, the, the guy and at, the, at the authority, I, I mean, I, I don't know what they have to say. All I know is they're the ones who are taking the Fifth Amendment. They haven't been heard from. They're the ones you, that... that Everybody's most interested in. Do you in. really think? Do you, okay, we got two minutes here. I'm going to ask you this one question. Do you really think that this is the type of baseball that a political savvy guy like Chris Christie would play, shutting down three lanes of the George Washington Bridge? It's. I can't imagine that 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 he would be that stupid. The question is, what do they have to say about who they told, what they were told in return? They tear, they're taking the I didn't, I, didn't, I, I don't know the I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't go off of your story. I'm just somebody, saying, no. Somebody appointed them. Somebody appointed people dumb enough to do that. Who was that? Oh, come on, Al. If I had a dime for every time a Republican or a Democrat appointed stupid people, I would be retired. The other, the other question is, is that, is that... This isn't open for debate. This is telling me a story. I told my story and let it go. If you want to bring it up as a topic next week, be my guest. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift... John McLaughlin. Uh, yeah, exactly. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Alan Moore, Carl Thuman, I am your host, Radio's Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday from Shelley's Back Room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Al? Use the zipper. No, no. Oh, God. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. That's what I was hoping for. We'll have Bob, we'll have Bob and, and Denise back next week, hopefully. Uh, you can also follow us on the website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics, or you can email me your show suggestions or questions Justin at backroompolitics.org. We'll see you next week, Washington. We'll see you next week, America. Have a great time. Bye-bye.